your singing this morning was absolutely beautiful. Thank you for doing that. Let's take our Bibles and let's head over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 for a study as we're going through a mini-series that's kind of just evolving. It's called Getting a Grip. This morning I wanted to speak on getting a grip on forgiveness. I'd like to start off with reading a story. It's written by a gentleman by the name of Lauren Vanderpost, and he wrote these words. I had a brother once. I betrayed him. Once there were two brothers from a small South African village. The older brother was tall, handsome, intelligent, an excellent athlete, a good student, and a natural leader. Sent away to a private school, he quickly made a name for himself at that school. As an admired, admired campus leader and outstanding athlete, he was in his final year when his younger brother arrived to begin his studies. The younger brother was not good-looking, nor was he athletic. He was a hunchback. Since his childhood, his mother had sewed padded jackets that concealed his spinal deformity. His sensitivity to a short, curved stature had grown through the years. None of the family ever spoke of it in respect to his shamed feelings. Yet the boy had one great gift. He had a magnificent voice and could sing gloriously like a nightingale. Soon after his arrival at the private school, the students held initiation ceremonies, which consisted of some public humiliation to extract some proof of courage. Often one student would be singled out to be especially hounded as the kind of a scapegoat. On the eve of the initiation, the student body, in a cruel mob action, ganged up on the younger brother. They carried him off to the water tank and demanded that he sing out loud. When he sang so beautifully, despite his fear, they became all the more abusive. They tore off his shirt to reveal his never-before-seen hunchback to their public ridicule. The older brother was aware of what was happening. He could have gone out and faced the sadistic student mob. A word from him would have put a stop to the whole tragic scene. As a leader, he could have acknowledged that the strange boy was his brother, but instead... He kept himself busy in the library while the mob raged outside. He betrayed his brother by refusing to go out to him in love when he was being publicly abused. The brother survived physically, but his spirit was crushed. The younger brother withdrew into himself. He never, ever sang again. At the end of the term, he returned to the family farm. Keeping to himself, he lived a lonely, reclusive life. The older brother, however, rose to successful prominence in the capital. And when World War II came, he was an officer stationed in Palestine. One night, while he was recovering from injury, he lay under the stars, and in a dream, he saw himself as a Judas in a circle of disciples around Christ. He said to himself, I am Judas. I had a brother once, and I betrayed him. It was as if Christ was saying to him, Go to your brother. The journey from Palestine was incredibly difficult because of his injuries. He arrived unannounced and found his brother watering plants in the parched ground. It was a time of a long drought. He looked into his younger brother's eyes, still imprisoned in that painful past experience, and he said to him, I've come all this distance to spend a few hours with you. And then he went straight to the heart of the matter about his great wrong that he had done. When he had finished, both were in tears. The first rainstorm of the year was breaking as the older brother walked back to the house and the younger brother went around the property to turn off the irrigation water. Then in a distance, the older brother heard a song of his younger brother in the garden. 
a song he had not heard since childhood, a song that he had written for his younger brother to sing. But now there was a new verse. It said, I rode all through the night to the fire in the distance burning, and beside the fire I found he who had waited for so very long. Forgiveness is hard. It's difficult. Let me ask you this. When it comes to forgiveness, how would you fill in the blank? Forgiveness is what? What would you say? It's freedom? Cathartic? What? It's necessary? What's that? Commanded? It's to be humbled. Anything else? It's healing. What'd you say? A gift? I'm sorry, Sandy? Making what was done not batter. I wrote down just a few thoughts. It's expected of every one of us. It's commanded by Jesus Christ. It's impossible without Christ. The idea that it's to be Christ-like because it's what he did on the very cross. I put down to keep not, to not keep bringing up those hurts over and over again. It's to be done repeatedly over and over again. It's really hard at times to do. I thought this, it's based on what God has done for us, and then go a little bit further. It's a major part of Matthew chapter 18. What I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to speak on forgiving one another. But as I was studying Matthew chapter 18, it dawned upon me that in order to speak upon it, we need to understand a more major truth first of all. Follow along in Matthew chapter 18, the words of Jesus Christ, where he says, verse 21, Peter comes to Jesus and he said to him, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times, which was very noble. Usually back in those days, three times was enough, but Peter's expanding that. And Jesus responds, verse 22, I say not unto you until seven times, but until seventy times seven, innumerable, without keeping track. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, the Lord commanded to be the man to be sold, his wife, his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him just a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and said, Pay me what you owe me. And his fellow servant said, fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, I will pay you all. But he would not, but went and cast him into a prison till he should have paid the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were really upset. They were sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said, Oh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired it of me. Shouldst not thou also have compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? The Lord was angry, delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every brother his trespasses. This passage, talking about forgiveness, which we need to talk about, but the main thought of this passage, this idea of us forgiving one another, the main thought of the text is this. We need to forgive others by remembering that God was willing to forgive us first and foremost. 
We, it is impossible for us to forgive one another, even to think about it, even to discuss it, until we recognize and we understand fully God was willing to forgive us of even greater debts than what anybody has done to, to us. In fact, you go through this text, and it's interesting. He says, I will forgive. I am willing to forgive even the black sheep. Look back up a few verses where Jesus says, The Son of Man is come, in verse 11, to save that which is lost. And then he says, What do you think? What what does this mean? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them go astray, doth he not leave the ninety-nine and goes to the mountain and seeks that one that's gone astray? And if so be that he finds it, verily he rejoices more of that sheep than the ninety-nine that went not astray. Even so, he says, is not the will of your Father this in heaven, that one of these, none of them should perish? He says, I am willing to forgive the black sheep who wanders away. I am willing to forgive those who sin over and over and over and over again. Jesus tells Peter, forgive up to 49 times. The idea is just don't keep track, just keep on forgiving. He doesn't command us to do something that he wasn't willing to do. But what really impressed upon me was this fact that God's forgiveness in this story, in this parable, is just, Jesus brings it out to say, think about it. God has been so gracious to you. Uh, Dissecting the, the parable that he tells. The heart of this parable is all about a man who owns a master something. He owns them quite a bit. He says, this is the way the kingdom of heaven is working. We're not talking the physical kingdom that's going to come one day in the future. If that ha- when that kingdom happens, there's not going to be any indebtedness. There's not going to be any imprisonment. He is using it as an illustration of what God is doing spiritually now in the aspect that part of the kingdom is in operation right now where there is forgiveness from the king, the one on the throne. And so in this story, he's talking about and putting it in a setting that is unfamiliar to us. It's a ruler who calls before him the people who owe him, taking an accounting of them. And as he does, this man owes him so much, he can't pay him back. And the ruler, as we read, he says, for that, your kids, your family, everything is going to be taken from you. They're all going to be put in jail, a debtor's prison. And the man pleads for mercy. Have mercy upon me. And the key phrase, the ruler is moved with compassion. And he forgives the man. He says, "Out of, I'm not going to put you in jail. But then he forgives him of all of the debt. The entirety of it. That is an absolutely amazing when you and I go a little bit more and understand the financial complexities of this story. What he's doing is he's saying this man owns 10,000 talents. That doesn't mean much to most all of us in this room. We don't understand that. We just think, oh, $10,000 or maybe something of that sort. No, my friend. If you understand, a talent was the largest type of monetary uh, cash or whatever there was in those days. It was, what's the largest bill the United States prints? $1,000 bill? Okay. Okay, whatever it is. That's the comparison. The talent is the largest singular amount of money that, that they had in those, by, in those days in the ancient world. 10,000 talents was an extremely exorbitant amount of debt. To give you an idea, Galilee, when it paid its annual taxes to the, to the empire of Rome, they paid 200 talents. The man owned 10,000. If you took Judea, Samaria, Inamia, all the region in that, re- in that area, it, when they paid their annual taxes to Rome, they paid 600 talents. 10,000 talents was probably more money that was in that entire region. 
In fact, we go a little bit further. The talent is equal to 6,000 days of working. In other words, 16 years income. Take whatever, whatever your annual income is. Multiply it by 16. That is one talent. So when you say 10,000 talents, it is equal to 160,000 years of your working. That's an incredible... The point is, it's beyond imagination how much. This is like the United States debt. Okay. That's what he's talking. That's what he's using. He's using figures and speech to say this is beyond comprehension, what this man owed him. There's no way anybody could pay this master that much. And when you think about it, to repay was impossible, but more importantly is he forgives the entire amount. Who's the picturing here? It's Christ for us. The whole idea in this story is that God is willing to forgive us in the amazing, same amazing way. God forgives us of something that is impossible for us to to pay back to him. And so when we start thinking about that, we start thinking about sometimes we, we, we don't want to forgive. We set some high standards. Here's a story that I read to the, to the Bible studies about three weeks ago on Wednesday night. But I wanted to read it again because it so clearly illustrates the idea of people not being forgiving. Author John Ortberg tells about, tells about the time that he and his wife traded in their Volkswagen Beetle for their first piece of new furniture when they were just a young couple. They bought a mauve sofa. The man at the furniture store warned us not to get it when he found out we had small children. You don't want a mauve sofa, he advised. Get something the color of dirt. But with the optimism of young parents, we said, we know how to handle our children. We want the mauve sofa. From that moment on, everyone in our house knew the number one rule my wife instituted. Do not sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat on, breathe on, look at, or think about touching the mauve sofa. It was like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. Then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. My wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and worshipped it, she lined up our three small children in front of the sofa. Laura was four. Mallory was two and a half. And even baby Johnny had to come, who was just six months old. Do you see this, children? She asked as she pointed to the stain. That's a stain. A red stain. A red jelly stain. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory, the two-and-a-half-year-old, was the first to break. With trembling lips, tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. (laughs) Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one dared to say a word. I knew they wouldn't. For if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. I knew they wouldn't because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the sofa. And I wasn't going to say anything either. Not to my wife. You know, sometimes we think God is that same way. That God is not willing to forgive us. And that is just not the truth. 
Jesus is trying to preach this and teach this to all the people that he's talking to. He has passages that he could point to from the Old Testament that say God's forgiving spirit is amazing. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all of his benefits who forgives us all our sins and heals our diseases. Isaiah wrote, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. He will have mercy and to our God for he will freely pardon. We read elsewhere in scriptures, declares the Lord, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the God we worship this morning. The God who is willing to forgive, to be merciful to us, even as our Father was merciful, forgive as our God forgave you. We have time and time again passages that talk about God's willingness to forgive. If you take your Bibles and flip over, we're going to head towards the right in your Bible throughout the sermon. Head over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. I want to just rehearse this thought. So It is so important. Before you can possibly discuss, we can discuss forgiving others. We need to really get a grip on God forgiving us. In Romans chapter 5, after he's talked about our sin and the wages of sin, and he's talked about all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and he talks about there is none righteous, no, not one, how all of us have sinned. Watch what he does in Romans chapter 5. He says, verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. And we have people who do that. We have had people in our military who have given their lives even for the good folk of our nation. He says, that's rare. That's that's not common. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would dare to die. But God, but God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet rebelling against God, we were cursing, using God's name, we were ignoring him. While we were yet sinners, what did Christ do for us? He died for us. He goes on, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the hell, the wrath, because of him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ, much more being reconciled, we are saved by his life. And not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, he says, we have now received the atonement. You all know this passage. The wages of our sin is, but, what's the best part? We deserve to go to hell. The wages of one sin is separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through whom? Jesus Christ. In fact, in the book of Romans, flip over a couple more chapters. In Romans chapter 10, he addresses this where he's talking and saying, how do people get forgiveness? Do they, do they get it by going to church? No. Do they get it by baptism? No. Do they get it by giving money? No. Do they get it by being an American? No. Do they get it by going to a Baptist church? No. Do they get it by having Bibles in their lap? No. He makes it very clear. Verse 9 of chapter 10. If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whosoever, don't you love that word? Because whosoever, that includes... Every single one of us. Whosoever, he goes on, believes on him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Oh, God is willing to forgive us. Why? We don't deserve it. Why? Because we look good. Why? Because we give monies. Why? Because we can, we can earn his favor. The answer to all of those is no, 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 no. God forgives us because he loves us. He is willing to do that. So when it comes to forgiveness in Christ, it is only found in Christ. We understand that because the scripture says in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through his sacrifice, through his death on the cross, where he gave his life to pay the penalty for every single one of our sins. It's through his sacrifice, through his life, through his blood that we have the forgiveness of sins. Not baptism, not, not our family. It's only through Jesus Christ who said when he met with those disciples and he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate tonight. This is my blood that makes the new covenant, the New Testament, which he says is shed for the forgiveness of sin. In fact, the book of Hebrews really relays this a whole lot more. Keep on going to the right. Let's head over to the book of Hebrews, farther to the right. In the book of Hebrews, we're jumping down to chapter 9. In chapter 9, what he's doing, going to do is he's dealing with people who are hanging on to their religious rituals. They're hanging on to their offerings. They're saying, well, we gave sacrifices in the past. Maybe if we bring more bulls and more goats and we offer them, then we will get saved because of that. And he's saying, no, no, no. Jesus is the only one. We jump all the way back to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, yes, Hebrews chapter 9. Jump down to verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every other commandments to all the people according to the law, he then took the blood of calves and goats, the water, the scarlet wool, and the hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined you to. In other words, this is God's signature, the contract through blood. That this is, this is an illustration that God is very serious about. He wants you to keep those commands, Jewish people. And then he goes on, he's saying, he said, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined to you. Moreover, he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle, all the vessels, because, he goes on, almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. So back in those days, if you wanted to have forgiveness, you had to come and bring a uh, sacrifice. You had to have that animal's blood sprinkled at the altar. It was symbolic of God's going to forgive you because there's a great sacrifice that's being paid. Some animal's life in picture, in foreshadow of Jesus giving up his life, shedding his blood, which he talks about in verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves a much better sacrifice. And he's talking about Christ as he goes on. He entered into heaven and his sprinkling of his blood brought that sacrifice to all of us. But he, the thought here is without the shedding of blood is no remission. That here in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ he said animals could cover it for a period of time, but eventually it had to be paid. It was like your credit card. You buy and you have it, but eventually you've got to make payment on your credit card. So they had forgiveness, but eventually the great sacrifice, the great payment had to be made. That was Jesus Christ. Once offered on the cross, 
once for all. Therefore, he was telling these people, you don't have to keep on doing the animal sacrifices. Jesus offered the sacrifice once for all. He gave everything. In fact, now we head to our last text. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be in chapter 1 and 2 for the next few minutes. 1 John chapter 2, he talks about this one more time. In 1 John 2, he says, verse 2, that Jesus Christ is... I'll give you a second to get there. 1 John 2, 2. He calls Jesus a, a title, a name that's extremely important. He says, he is the propitiation for our sins. Before we go any... Well, let me finish out the verse. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does it mean, propitiation? I, I don't think we use that every day. It's not a term that we, are, we, we frequently throw up you know, and, and speak about. Propitiation, it's tied to something out of that Old Testament tabernacle. That's that Old Testament illustration that was talked about in, in uh, Hebrews 9. The word literally means this idea to cover up, to satisfy, to pay for, cover up the offense that was made. Now, in, when this is talked about, it talks about the propitiation of the of the tabernacle, the propitiation of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember what the Ark of the Covenant was? Do you remember? I'll show you this picture, this, this idea of it. It, it the, in the Old Testament, was that an important part of the worship? Very important. Where was it kept? In the Holy of Holies. For somebody here who doesn't understand that, if you were coming to the temple to worship, you and I who were Gentiles could only come as far as the foyer. Then only the Jews could come in. But then only the priests could come up towards this platform area, and we called this the Holy of Holies just for sake of discussion. That area right back there was where God would meet with the high priest. How often could he go in? Once a year. Okay. And when he went in, what did he do? He made prayer for the people and he sprinkled blood on that, that piece of furniture right there. Now, it's kept, you already said, the Holy of Holies. This is all to picture that sinful people can't just randomly come on in and see God. Um, what's kept inside this Ark of the Covenant? There was three different important items. Okay? You got Aaron's rod that budded. You got a pot of... And you had the tablets from the Ten Commandments. And so when they would come in, they would, the priest would come in and he would sprinkle the top of this that, that in here was those three items. What was the top of this called? The mercy seat. Do you know what the word also can be translated? Propitiation. This was called the propitiation. Now think this through, what he's doing with this whole picture. Okay? In the Day of Atonement, they come in and they sprinkle on top of the propitiation, the mercy seat. And what was he picturing? That when God from heaven looks down, here inside are the Ten Commandments. How many people violate them? All of us. We violate these commands of God. But when God looks down, now what does he see? The blood that was sprinkled there. That covered up all the offenses that the Jewish people did. It was all picturesque of this idea that God doesn't see our sins once we're forgiven. Now, all of this that we just said is very important, if you just keep with me here these next few minutes, to correct some wrong teaching. 
that is being taught around churches in America. I grew up and I was told that God is reluctant to forgive us. God is like an angry dad who doesn't want to forgive, so you have to go and talk to mom. And mom will go and talk him into forgiving us. That whole system was, that person that we talked to was the Virgin Mary. And she was the one that would get our propitiation. She was the one that would get our favor. According to the Bible, is God willing to forgive us? Yes. This is wrong teaching. Wrong teaching. There's also this teaching that forgiveness can be gotten by you and I doing enough good things that we earn God's forgiveness. Hey, the story that Jesus already gave, how many of us can earn forgiveness? None. There's just absolutely no, I mean, I'm sorry, we can all get forgiveness. How many of us can work for it? None of us, because our debt is so vast. 10,000 talents. There's this teaching, okay, that some have. Forgiveness might be had through church, through a denomination, through family. What's the Bible say? That's, that's not true. Salvation is through Jesus only. He is the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes unto the Father, but... Yeah, okay. So, oops, I wanted to uh, go here. If you personally believe in Christ and ask Him to forgive you of your sins, you believe that He died, buried, and resurrected for you, and you have come to Him personally sometime in your life and said to Him, I have come to this spot in my life where I realize I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I deserve to go to hell. Please forgive me. And you, you alone can because you are the only one that had the ability to die, bury, and resurrect to cover my sins. If you've done that, he's given you forgiveness and the gift and the promise of eternal life. That's what he writes in 1 John. These things have written unto you that have already believed that you may know that you have eternal life. There is that at that moment, the similar, similarity of you've been born into God's family. At that moment when you repent and call upon Christ, you're adopted. That, that term is used in the Bible. You are legally brought into his family. You are his child. But there's another false teaching that that's, goes along with this. That once you have eternal life, that means you can do whatever you want. Once you've prayed and asked Christ to be your Savior, then go out and sin. In fact... You can just go and do whatever you want. And the Bible says that's just not true. In fact, we are close to this um, where it said, look, look at 1 John 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, these things write unto you that you what? That you sin not. That teaching is absolutely wrong. It is errant. We are bought with a the price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies which belong to Christ Jesus. So just because we've been freed from our sin doesn't mean we're freed to do whatever we want. Out of love and respect and gratitude, we should live for the glory of Christ. However, however, that teaching is not only wrong, but this is spawned off of that. There are those who are teaching even this day, today, that you as believers... You who have called upon Christ, you don't need to go to him for daily confession of sin because your sins have all been forgiven, past, present, and future. And by the way, have our sins been forgiven? They have. 
But does that mean we're, we don't have to go and ask him for forgiveness? This teaching was very predominant in Bible days. It was a claim as Gnosticism, antinomianism. It is even true today that some are still propagating this who say this, if you go and ask God to forgive you for lying, for cheating, for losing your temper, for driving like a, you know, a maniac, if you say, God, forgive me for not working the way I should, you are exercising a lack of faith in not believing that God has forgiven you. So don't bother confessing at all. Is that what the Bible really teaches? I am God's child. I am adopted. I have eternal life. So do you who have been, been calling upon Christ or who have called upon Christ. But as a child with a permanent relationship, you have children in your homes. Can your children still disobey you? Even though they're your child, your child, can they still lose their temper, get selfish? When that happens, does that disrupt the relationship? Are they still your child? The answer is yes, they're still your kid. But does it disrupt favor? Does it disrupt you bestowing everything upon them? It's the fellowship that gets disrupted. It's the, okay, you disobeyed, you didn't follow curfew, therefore you're going to stay home and not be able to do everything you want. They're still my child. But I'm still going to have some type of correction because our fellowship, our favor has been broken. But it doesn't mean our relationship. So in that same way, what this is all about is that we still need God's forgiveness. We aren't going to lose our salvation, but we're going to lose God's favor. Otherwise, if we don't go and ask for forgiveness, for whom the Lord love, he chastens and scourges every son that receives. If God deals with you as children, if you aren't having any chastisement for unconfessed sin, then you are probably not his child. He makes it very clear that he is still concerned about you and me on a daily basis, a regular basis, coming before him and asking him, forgive me of the sins. It's all covered legally eternally, but on a daily basis, I am still sorry for what I did today. I'm your child, but I lied. I'm your child, but I, but I lost my temper. I'm your child, but I, I didn't speak graciously to my wife, to my kids. God is still concerned about that every day coming to him. Otherwise, he's going to chasten us. In fact, we're going to celebrate communion tonight, and the people in the city of Corinth, the church in Corinth, because they took communion wrong, some of them got sick. Some of them were, were even to the point that they died. They were God's children, legally, eternally, but favor in this life. They needed to be forgiven or to repent so they could be forgiven of their attitude that they were taking communion wrong. This idea comes from other passages where he says, if, a, if you see a brother, another believer, sin a sin unto death, there is the possibility that believers, could, their life could be taken away because they have rebelled against God to such a point that he says, time to come home. You're, you're a mess there. I've got to bring you home. He says, we don't pray for that, but there is that possibility that children may be taken home prematurely. This was that whole idea where Jesus is speaking to believers. He's telling them to pray something like the Our Father, which means that they have relationship. And what does he say you have to pray for? You have to pray not only for your daily bread, but you have to be asking and praying for, forgive us our... 
Isn't it interesting he uses the same term that Jesus used with indebtedness, talking about our sins, something that's impossible to pay? He says it again in Luke, forgive us our sins. There's an entire story in John chapter 13. In John 13, it's the night that Jesus is coming in before he dies. He comes into the house, they have their feast, they have their supper. Then Jesus gets up and starts washing the feet. Now you and I need to understand and remember what was foot washing back in that days. How did that work? You guys didn't have, none of us would basically have baths or showers in our homes. They were more of a community thing. And so we would go and have our bath, our shower, we would have at the community place. But then when we would walk through the streets to get to our home or to get to somewhere else, what did we need to do when we entered that house? We needed to wash the feet so that we wouldn't dirty up the house. Based on that, Jesus gets up and starts washing the disciples' feet. Peter, when he sees this, he tells Jesus, don't wash my feet. He's humbled. He's embarrassed. And Jesus responds to him, and Jesus says, If I don't wash your feet, you have no part or fellowship with me. Jesus is teaching a spiritual lesson. And Peter responds, and he says, Oh, 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 if washing my feet makes us closer, then Jesus, give me a bath. Give me a whole complete bath. Jesus responds and says the spiritual truth. He says, he that is bathed all over doesn't need to get bathed all over again. What does he just need to do? When he's walking through life, he needs to just have his feet washed. And then Jesus makes that comment, not all of you are bathed all over, referring to Judas. And so the point that Jesus is making is, once you ask Christ to be your Savior, how long are you saved? forever. But what do you need to do on a regular daily basis? You still need to ask God, Christ for forgiveness. And yet there are some believers who have fallen for that lie that since I have eternal life, don't worry about it. I'm going to heaven. I don't need to have any time of confession. There are some believers who haven't taken time this week at all to examine their heart and ask Christ to forgive them. Because I'm saved. I'm saved. It doesn't make any difference. I'm on my way to heaven. How I live in this life, no worry. That is not biblical truth. Biblical truth is very simple. Is this, that once saved, we don't need to get saved all over, but we do need to be concerned about daily cleansing. Daily confession of sin is still a very important part of our life. That's exactly the chapter, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, when he starts off in this whole section, and he starts off and he's writing to believers. Look what he starts saying to the believers. And he says in verse 5, This is the message which we have heard of him. We declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Christ, he keeps on cleansing us from all sin. If we say, though, that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, I've not sinned, we make him a... And the truth is not in him. What does this passage teach us about forgiveness as believers? And I take you back to the beginning thought. 
you are going to struggle with forgiving other people unless you get a grip on God's forgiveness towards you. God's forgiveness is still needed. Not for my eternal sake, but for my daily blessings. This passage where he writes in 1 John 1, 9, it is to believers, it is not to the unsaved. How do we know that? He says we how many times in these verses? John is including himself. In fact, he says, I have written unto you that believe already on the name of the Son of God. He says to them, we need God's forgiveness on a daily basis. I'm saved, I'm headed for heaven, I have eternal life, but to keep a real close walk with the Lord and right daily fellowship, I need to go to Him daily and ask for cleansing because our God in heaven is holy. And we on earth, we are not holy. So watch how this passage brings this out. It says God is light, twice in this text. It's talking about God is light, and in Him is... No darkness. Why does he say the same thing twice? It's for emphasis. It's for us to get it. He wants us to understand this. He is saying with using that image of light that God has no blemish. God has total purity. If we think this through, this is beyond our comprehension. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember he all of a sudden showed his inner glory. He showed his light. He showed his holiness. How did that compare to the noonday sun? When, when, when Paul saw it, it was brighter than the sun. How did the disciples on Mount of Transfiguration, when they saw Jesus in his holiness, what did they do? They fell down. They were consumed by, it is beyond our comprehension how holy God is. Being holy, he is totally transparent. Being light, there's no dark spots with him. There's no shady corners. I understand why the politicians get up and say, I'm being transparent with you. But we also understand they're not. They aren't. But God is. When God reveals himself to us, he is what he says he is. There is no gray area with God. There is no shady corner with God. There is nothing hiding about God. God is holy. God is all light. He has nothing to do with that which is dim, that which is darkness. This God becoming light, he gets rid of everything that's hidden. Light always reveals. That means God knows everything about you and me. As him being total light... There is nothing that we can shade. There's nothing that we can hide. God knows every ounce of what we say, what we do, how we act, our attitudes. That alone should get us to confess. Because there are things in every one of our lives we don't want anybody else to know. But God knows it. There are reactions that we have that we would be totally embarrassed if others saw it. But God sees it. God knows it. And being so holy, beyond our comprehension, we are just struggling to say, I need your forgiveness daily because I'm not as holy as you. In fact, he goes on, he says, some of you are claiming to be holy. That's where he goes in verse 6. He goes in verse 6 and he says, hey, we're not holy. Some of you talk and say you're really holy. 
You claim to be holy. Did you see where he says that in verse 6? He says, some are saying, we have fellowship with him. We're, we're here on church on Sunday. We're, we're, we're you know, right here. Everybody, look, I'm here. I'm at church. But where nobody sees on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, this afternoon, this evening, where nobody sees, you walk in darkness. God sees it. Your walk doesn't cover up the wrong, the wrong attitudes, the wrong actions. Talk is not enough with God. Singing is not enough with God. So I'll, I'll just come, I'll lie at work, I'll cheat, I'll lose my temper, but I'm going to come and I'm going I'm to sing the great songs of Blessed Be the Name. It doesn't cover it up. God sees it. In fact, he says God knows there's stuff in every one of our lives. That's why he is constantly cleansing us. There is still a need for us to grow to be more like Christ. Verse 7 says he is cleansing us all the time, working with us, trying to make us holy. But then he says, and yet some of you, some of you say we have no sin. I'm not that bad. How, how, do, how do believers in the New Testament era who've called upon Christ, how have they denied sin? Through history, here's how it's done. Some have actually said and taught, I don't sin anymore. Some have stood up in pulpits and said, I have come to a point where I don't sin. I got news for you. You say that, you just lied. Because how many of us still struggle with sin? We all do. We all do. He says in this text, we still struggle with it. We aren't yet, we're saved from the penalty of sin, but we're not yet saved from the presence of sin. Okay? We're not saved from the power of sin in the sense that we... We still battle. The Apostle Paul says, the things that I would, I don't do. The things that I wish I didn't do, I still do. I still struggle after 30 years of being an apostle. He's still struggling. We all do. But some have denied it by saying, my sin isn't that bad. Comparing to others, they might say, what's the big deal that I disobey my parents? As a saved teenager, what's the big deal that I, that I don't respect them? Others don't respect their parents. They're denying your own sin by excusing it, by comparing to others. Some will say, it was an accident. I didn't really mean to do it. It's just an accident. Some will make these comments. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. I didn't mean to. Or others will start reclassifying sin. You know how it is in our society? Murder of children isn't murder anymore. It's pro-choice. You know how the idea of, of pornography, people don't want to say it's pornography, now it's called adult entertainment. People don't want to say, I've been immoral, I'm sexually liberated. We do it all the time. We reclassify, we rename sins. We, we say, you know, I, I'm a victim. I can't help what I did. I'm a victim. Is this popular in America? Okay, let me give you three articles. One case in point. The man was who was here. Uh, a case in point was the man who was shot and paralyzed while committing a burglary in New York City. Surprise! He was shot by the store owner, but the attorney successfully convinced the jury that the man was first of all a victim of society, driven to crime because of his economic disadvantages. He was further victimized by the insensitivity of the store owner who shot him. Therefore, he was a victim of that store owner's selfishness. The jury agreed 
the store owner was required to pay the victim tens of thousands of dollars for his crime against the burglar. Several months later, the same burglar, now wealthy and in a wheelchair, was arrested while committing another armed robbery. Here's one. Man was mugged and brutally beaten by a, uh, a man mugged and brutally beat an elderly New York man in the subway. He was shot by the police while attempting to flee. As a result, he was paralyzed. He sued and won $4.8 million in compensation from the New York Transit Authority. The reason why? He was a victim of his circumstances. A drug dealer shot and killed eight children and two women at close range. Jurors were told that the use of drugs and the daily stress of, quote, everyday life were a reasonable explanation for his actions. The jury ruled that the drug dealer was, quote, a victim under extreme emotional distress and the influence of drugs, therefore he was not found guilty. Is that happening? Yeah, yeah, it happens in our culture. Does it happen in the pew? Do people ever... Have you ever claimed not guilty because it's somebody else's fault? It's not me. It's not me. It's somebody else. It's what they've done. There's a, there's a funny story that comes out that the CEO takes over a new company, and as the outgoing CEO is talking to him, he says, I want to give you three tidbits of advice, but I wrote them in an envelope. And I've put the envelopes, all three of them, in your top desk drawer, marked number one, number two, number three. And when you make a mistake that is so big and costly, I advise you to do this. The first time, go and pick out envelope number one. I have something written in there. Second time, envelope number two. Third time, envelope number three. The new CEO, he's excited, doesn't think he'll ever make a mistake. Months go by, the honeymoon is over, and he makes a huge mistake, costly mistake. And then he remembers, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's an envelope. He had some tidbit of advice what I should do. So he goes, pulls out the envelope, rips it open, and all it says is two words. Blame me. So he did that. It's the former CEO's fault. It's all he did. It worked. He still had his job. Months go by, he makes another huge mistake. He runs to the desk, and he pulls out envelope number two. Blame the board. So he did it. Everything went fine. Never lost his job. Another year goes by, he makes a huge mistake. Runs, pulls out envelope number three, and it says, write your three envelopes. We run out of excuses, folk. There's a time when it's done. It's done. But should I tell you what I think is a greater tragedy? It's when we practice agnosticism as believers. An agnostic believes there's a God, but basically, I don't have to worry about him. I just do my own thing. Those of you and I, if I do this, we are denying our sin at times by simply not dealing with them. Ignoring the idea of confession. Were you a practicing agnostic this week? Did you even take time to examine your heart, your life, and say, God, where am I at? What about me? Is there something in my heart this week that I haven't owned up to? 
Is there an attitude? Is there an action? Is there a response? Is there the way that I worked or didn't work? Or, or do you purposely just keep on hanging on to the lie, the deception, the sin, the attitude that Christ says you need to confess? His message to you is get real. You're not deceiving anybody else. You're not deceiving God. God sees it all. You're not going to deceive others long term. You're only deceiving yourselves. The truth is not in you. You and I need to be practicing this. We need to be getting a hold. Before we worry about forgiving other people, we need to make sure that we've gotten a hold on God's forgiveness for our life. That he is willing to forgive us just so graciously. But we understand that we need it every day. That we need to be coming to him. You're not going to prosper with hiding sin. The Bible makes it clear. He that covers sin shall not prosper. There's a true story out of nature about a certain moth, butterfly I should say, that in New Zealand, when it's in its caterpillar stage, it secretes a certain chemical that the ants, they are drawn to. They become enamored with it. They become drunk with it. So much so that this nectar that's being secreted, they pick up the caterpillar, they carry it down to their nest. And there they don't harm it because they want it to keep on producing this nectar that's on its skin. But the caterpillar, once it's inside the colony, the caterpillar starts eating all the larvae of the, of the ants and destroys all of the future colony. But they don't stop because they're overcome by this nectar that's on this caterpillar. If you're hiding some sin, some deceit, some, some action or attitude, if you're hiding something that you've taken, something that you're doing wrong, that you're hiding from everybody else, you need to confess it. It's like that caterpillar in your life. It's going to destroy But God is willing to forgive you. And so his point is, you need to admit everything. What does 1 John teach us about forgiveness? It's still needed. How do we respond? We admit everything. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. There's a preacher from a number of years ago. His name is James Orr. He was preaching, teaching out in California. had several doctorates. But he would go around the world preaching at times. In 1931, he went to New Zealand. And he went there with the idea of we're going to preach and we have this revival. But before they did the revival, they asked churches to have prayer meetings, to examine their hearts. He said what happened there was all of a sudden the young people got serious. And the young people got really, really burdened for the idea of making sure they're clean with the Lord. And they wanted to make sure that their lives were were just purified. And they weren't harboring or, or... holding on to any, any unconfessed sin. And he said, it was amazing. The revival meetings were profound. And at the end of the meetings, he said there four young ladies came up to him. They sang a traditional Aborigine goodbye song. And he said the tune was beautiful. And as he flew back, he put different words to that very tune. Words that you know. Words that you sing from time to time. Words that talk about searching me, O God. Search me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. I ask you, 
to join me in a prayer song this morning between you and God and saying, God, search me. Search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me cleanse me from every sin and set me free heads are bowed and eyes are closed and before we close the service we want to give opportunity if there's anyone youngster, oldster single, married man, woman if you're here today and you do not know Christ is your Savior, we want to give you that chance to go and talk with somebody right now in private to make sure that you know that you have the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness for all eternity. Our staff, others are headed for the side door, the right side of our auditorium. If you would like to go and talk with somebody this day about your eternal destiny, then feel free to get up right now. Others will gladly move. They'll shift. Go and talk with somebody. Believer, you who are born again, is your heart right with Christ this day? Father, I pray, help us by your grace to be holy people to the best of our ability, but more importantly, to be clean, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ because we've confessed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we'll pick up, finish out that whole passage. Thanks so much. See you later.